anyway, um, firstly, thank you for coming. Appreciate your support. And of course, it gives me great pleasure to introduce this gentleman who does nothing but abuse me on a Sunday, <laughs> normally, you know, and uh, we get on very well eventually, don't we? And Stuart. And we've got his hand on son, Stuart. Thank you, Tony and Stuart, for coming tonight. Okay. We really appreciate it. Um, what you're going to talk about, I think, is quite uh, confrontational, would I say, would be a possibility. Yeah. It's going to give you guys something to think about. It's something that happened, I think, 2017. Um, we're all astounded to see this block <coughs> burning, people dying, etc., etc. And where are we? We don't seem to be moving much further forward, really. So, hand it over to Tony and Stuart, and we look forward to hearing Thank what you, you have to say. Thank you very much. <laughs> Right, that's all right, that's okay, right, uh, <coughs> Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, I brought my son because he's very much more of an expert than I am on these things, and also it will save you getting bored with my voice. So I'll hand over to Stuart to start. I've got this working. This is, oh, there we go. <coughs> Good evening, my name's Stuart Palmer, and um, Tonight, in combination with my father, that's okay, that's who's invited me, we're going to show okay. you how this book is actually relevant today to the building that we're sat in. Uh, given this is a church hall, that may not be very strange to you, but I wanted to start with three key teachings that I think show this book should be relevant to every building we ever enter. First one i like to remind us of is the fear of God is, of course, the beginning of all wisdom. For the reverence and fear of God are basic to all wisdom. Knowing God results in every other kind of understanding. Wisdom will make, I, wisdom will make the hours of your day more profitable and the years of your life more fruitful. Wisdom is its own reward and if you scorn her, you hurt only yourself. That's the message version, that's the Living Bible version of Proverbs 9, verses 10 to 12. Then of course you get the first health and safety instruction, perhaps in the world, in Deuteronomy 22, verse 8, when you build a new house, you must build a railing around the edge of its flat roof. That way, you will not be considered guilty of murder if someone falls from the roof. That's the New Living Translation. And then finally, and I think very pertinent to what we're going to look at tonight, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And as we'll see this evening, that is one of the factors that builds up um, during the evening. So our talk tonight is going to take us on a bit of a journey. It illustrates graphically how ignoring these three Bible teachings leads to great pain and suffering. So yes, folks, we're going to use the UK construction industry as our example. Back to my father. All right. <coughs> Good evening. 70, 74 years ago, I left school age 16 and the same week I started a five-year apprenticeship with a heating and ventilating company in Southampton. I took City and Guilds, I went to night school, and in those days we worked nine till six, uh, five days a week, and 12 till, uh, sorry, nine to 12 on Saturday mornings. Um, I took mechanical exams at Technical College, City and Guilds, and I spent nine months at university in London. Then I had two years national service in the Royal Engineers. 95% of our, what I needed to run a private company 
doing millions of pounds worth of work every year, I learnt at technical college, very little at university. My grandfather started his own business in 1909. My father took it over in 1960, uh, 1930 rather, and I took it over in 1960. The business was basically heating and ventilating and mechanical and electrical services, but we got involved in all sorts of other things as we expanded the business um, in um, uh, mainly commercial and, uh, and uh, residential buildings. Uh, a lot of the things were quite dangerous, and anything, any failures we had might be fatal. So I will hand over to my second in command here. Um, we're going to put the talk into five sections tonight so you know where we've got to instead of just a long diatribe. Um, and some quiz questions along the way, just to make sure you're keeping with us. So we're going to take a quick spin through building regulations in <coughs> section two. Um, learn what's driven growth and change in the building industry, particularly since World War II. And then um, look at change that's come about since the World War II in Section 3, which does lead on to some tragic examples of failure in Section 4, the heart of our talk, and then after which we come into land with a look towards the future and what we can learn and apply. So Section 2, Building Regulation Development. As we've seen in the Old Testament there, um, we do need rules to guide us because um, we've got sinful, corrupted natures. We don't always do things as we should, hence the need for some rules and guidance. And I would argue that as faith and belief in God have declined and building design has advanced, actually we need more rules and regulations to ensure safety. Back to you. Wow. <coughs> now, on the screen you're about to see um, <coughs> which two centuries listed on the screen had a positive effect on building regulations in the UK. So have you got to pick two? Any votes for A, 1200? No, no hands up there. All right, B, 1400s? No, 1500s, anybody? Oh, you think 1500s? Okay, two votes for 1500s. 1600s? Okay, some history buffs here, good. And 1800s? Okay, so what were the answers, Father? Well, the answers were 1200 when the Mayor of London banned thatch roofs, which were causing a lot of trouble in London. And of course, 1600, the Great Fire of London. Now, <clears throat> that was mainly involved in fire breaks, and uh, this is why our buildings stood up so well in the last war to German incendiary bombing, etc. And um, for speed tonight, we will now focus on the post-war period um, and what drove the building industry during this time. <clears throat> As a schoolboy growing up towards the end of the war, I can remember German bombers, bombers flying over. The German Luftwaffe dropped thousands of bombs on London from 1939 to 1945, killing almost 30,000 people. More than 70,000 buildings were completely demolished, and another 1.7 million were damaged. Across the country, about three in every ten homes were damaged or destroyed a massive blow for any country to face. In fact, the UK suffered a higher percentage of building destruction than most other countries in Europe, which were occupied by enemy forces. It was time for the building industry of the UK to respond. Despite labour shortages caused by human cost of war, 
stunning photos show London being rebuilt just five years after the Blitz. Flattened, uh, Blitz flattened the capital. <coughs> Before the war, quality and care were the watchwords of the construction industry. After the war, with so much to rebuild and so few skilled people around to do the work, speed and cost became the priorities. To allow the building industry more freedom, from the 1950s it was unwisely decided to allow the building industry to draw up its own building regulations. In the 1940s, technical schools emerged. They were intended to focus on technical subjects such as mechanics and engineering and prepare students to work in related trades, and they were very good. Sadly, most were closed down in the 1950s, and this had a very big negative impact on the training of skilled people. I've shared this with you because it goes some way to explaining what happened next in the UK construction industry to overcome both the labour and skills shortage. New, new building methods were tried. <coughs> some worked very well. Prefabricated buildings, for example, and low-rise buildings were very good. Because it worked for low-rise buildings, people thought it could work for taller buildings. They also thought the building upwards would enable cities in the sky to be built. Places for people to live that were cheaper and faster to build than traditional housing with less skilled people constructing them. Between 1959 and 1967, many tower blocks were built up across the UK. How many do you think were built during that time? So guesses, uh, A, 1,500, no, hands for that, B, 2,000, C, 3,200, okay, one, one on 3,200, 4,000, oh, quite a few, four, and 4,800. And the answer was? 4,800. Just in that period alone. <laughs> for, for a while, it looked like everybody was a winner. And the, <coughs> in this new world of innovative construction. Oh, hang on, hang on. Just before you go on that, I've got a bit now. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry you about should, that. Uh, my turn for a bit, yeah. So during this post-war period, um, manufacturers also responded with lots of new building materials. This is also key for later in the talk. Um, what, what they came up with were all kinds of cladding panels, uh, some of which uh, became a little bit more notorious earlier than others. And they were made from all kinds of materials, uh, wood waste, asbestos, cement, gypsum, flax, hard plastics, laminates, and usually produced with synthetic resins, cement, or other binding agents. And they were designed um, in, in single or multi-layered panels and boards to fulfill all kinds of uh, requirements. So in addition to being very decorative, uh, which architects obviously loved, uh, they could offer a bit of thermal and acoustic insulation, be lightweight, quick to install, cheap, impermeable to water, and easy to maintain. Um, so all of these made them very popular. As we know, um, asbestos, which came in many guises, uh, did get found out in the, the, the 60s as being um, very good for lots of things, but not if you knocked it around, and certainly not if you worked covered in dust and, and breathed it in. And I'm sure all of us have known people that have died of uh, a miserable death of asbestosis, as it became known. But it wasn't until the 1970s that that was acknowledged and the material got banned from use in many applications. 
for a while, it looked like everything was winner. The new world of innovative construction. That's the first, first um, uh, residential block of flats that were built. Housing was being built quicker. Local authorities got many flats built cheaply. All seemed good. No one was much concerned about the quality as long as families needing housing had somewhere to live. In 1960, a German company invented aluminium composite material, ACM, which consisted of two thin sheets of aluminium with a petroleum jelly infill. This could be used as a cheap form of building cladding, which made it look very good and provided some level of insulation. Now, <clears throat> if you look closely at this slide, I'll point out a feature of it that is very relevant later in this talk. You will see that uh, there's an air gap in this cladding material, and when you fit a series of these panels together, the air gap becomes like a chimney or flue pipe. Please hold this in your mind as we go through this talk together. As part of the rush to experiment with new methods of housing construction, multi-storey buildings began to be constructed in factories, prefabricated, before being brought to site, and then bolted together. Buildings like Rowan Point, for example. So Rowan Point was a prefabricated building. <clears throat> I used to live in the East End of London. Uh, this happened actually before I got there. Um, a gas explosion blew out um, one of the flats. Lots more collapsed when they investigated and found that the problem was uh, not so much the design of the building, but it had been very poorly bolted together. Lots of the bolts hadn't been installed. Some of them had been put in the wrong holes, etc. And it was a complete disaster. So it was a combination of design and construction that came together to cause <coughs> um, catastrophic failure there. And it did cause a big loss of confidence from that point onwards in high-rise buildings. But even then, despite some major changes in building regulations at that point, it still didn't really impact the future of the building industry. Back to you. <coughs> now, hang on, there's one more bit, actually. Um, since the mid-1980s, uh, as we'd heard, English building regulations have been based on what's known as performance-based system. And what that meant was that rather than setting out prescriptive rules or listing up these materials are banned, you can't use this, you must use that, etc., the regulations outlined broad outcomes which buildings had to achieve. And then theoretically it was up to the industry to decide how to meet those standards, which is why we start to get into all of the debate that has ensued, particularly since Grenfell, and why it's very tricky. And that change actually was introduced by Margaret Thatcher's government, and this is not meant to be a political discussion tonight, in 1985, but essentially it took away 306 pages of building regulations and re replaced them with about 24. So it, it certainly did cut through the building regulations, but it radically changed the whole approach to building safety. And many people would argue that was um, not a good thing to do and made life even more difficult for people who were honestly trying to put up buildings and erect them to a good standard. Back right. to you. <clears throat> In 1989, the government spent a million pounds and put aluminium composite material, cladding system, ACM, on Knowlesbury Heights, an 11-storey block of flats in Merseyside, 
monitor, monitored by the Building Research Establishment, BRE. At 2am on the morning of Friday the 5th of April 1991, not long after the work was completed, arsonists set fire to the bins, rubbish bins outside the block. Fire from these bins ripped up the building and into flats on 11 floors before the fire brigade arrived. The attending fire crews described the scene as the most frightening fire that any of them had ever seen. The views of the attending fire crews were ignored and similar cladding was installed on Grenfell Tower five years later. In 1999, there were two other important events that relate to our story tonight. In June of that year, fire struck at Garnet Court in Scotland. Fire ripped up the cladding and one person was killed. In the same year, <clears throat> a former building control surveyor from London, Brian Martin, took the job with a building research establishment, BRE, as a manager. He was employed by BRE, but spent half his time on secondment to the government department responsible for building regulations as part of BRE's contract to assist with review of fire safety guidance. Mr Martin was part of the team of researchers from BRE sent to investigate the cause of the blaze at Granite Court. In September 1999, Mr Martin co-authored a report on, to North Ayrshire Council <coughs> which made several references to Class O standards and this was required standard for glass reinforced plastic panels that had been installed beneath windows at the tower that had spread the fire up the building. The report also said that when the building was re remediated, we suggest that non-combustible material was chosen wherever possible. Years later, in Grenfell Tower inquiry, when asked what he remembered about this material used at Granite Court, Mr Martin said it was very low tech and obviously something was likely to become involved in a fire and result in fire spread. He compared it to the material a Boy Scout might use to make a canoe. Asked what he learned from his investigation of the fire, he said, don't use combustible cladding, I suppose, in very simple terms. Various tests were performed um, during this period on different types of cladding. And the one concern with, one concern with ACM <clears throat> was actually devastating. But the results uh, were never published, um, which is extremely shocking. The EU changed its rules about this time. The UK was supposed to follow, but we never did. And we were warned that we in the country of the United Kingdom would become a dumping ground for cheap materials. So an employee of one manufacturer of the insulation materials described the fire test on its material as a raging inferno. This is in 2007. But the test results were never published and it was subsequently especially recommended for use in high-rise buildings. Sales staff were instructed to keep the fire performance results very confidential. Another internal document stated that if a fire occurred at night, it could easily kill 60 or 70 people. These materials would end up being used at Grenfell 
And contractors, in fact, bragged against about the extra profit that they made by using the cheaper materials. And another contractor said, well, you don't need fire breaks because the ACM would be gone very quickly in a fire. So in case you can't quite get your head around yet how quickly this stuff burns, if we look at this test here, this is a building research establishment, <clears throat> which I have been to visit in the past during my days as a building services engineer. And they have a rig there, test rig for testing different materials. The, left, the, the, the shot on the left, five minutes for ignition, 10 minutes for ignition, 20 minutes, and now 25 minutes, and basically everything is gone in 25 minutes from when the fire is set. Um, that gives you how quickly this material can go up. So the fire brigade don't have a chance, really, because as we've heard, by the time they get there, if a fire's got into the cladding, they can't get near it because it's just shot up. <clears throat> now, in 2009, Lackanall House, which is a council tower block in Southwark, had a fire on the sixth floor. Two adults and three children were killed. And now the flats had been badly built, a legally required risk assessment hadn't been done, and the residents had been ordered to stay in their flats. So this is Lackanall House in Southwark. Um, residents' complaints hadn't been listened to, um, been constantly ignored, and the management company had concealed reports of a faulty smoke extraction system. Uh, they were told, this was standard instruction in these days, was to, before Grenfell, was to stay in the flat. The idea being, and we'll show this later, that the flat would, go, would be a safe place to remain. And most blocks of flats in the UK are built with a single staircase. And of course the difficulty is, you've then, if you don't plan things correctly, you've got people trying to come in, the rescue services, at the same time that people are trying to go out. And the other thing people don't think about is that <clears throat> in lots of these residential blocks of flats, people didn't choose to go and live in them. Sometimes people who've got infirmities are living in them, which is fine all the time the lifts are on, um, but the minute you shut the lifts off, you then need a personal evacuation plan for those individuals, and the fire brigade, fire brigade <coughs> need to have a fully up-to-date plan as to where those individuals are located in that particular block. And often, even now, in many blocks, that doesn't happen. Back to you. <coughs> so what actually happened at Grenfell in 2017? A smoke alarm woke the overdriver, Benhali Kimbedi, living in flat 16 on the fourth floor, <coughs> London, at six minutes before 1am on the 14th of June. He rang the fire brigade banged on the doors of all the other six flats on his floor and all the residents in those flats left the building before 1am. Within six minutes of the time he woke up and called the fire brigade, an electrical fault had set the plastic backing on his fridge alight, which had then set the whole flat on fire. The fire brigade put out his um, flat with some difficulty but then noticed that the fire had spread outside the, window, outside the window and caught the lagging on fire. The fire was racing up the, build, racing up the wall at breakneck speed. <coughs> <coughs> 1am on the 13th floor, <coughs> a man woke up his son and told him that, to leave the building as it was on fire. <coughs> he then warned the other six flat owners on his floor and they all left the building. By nine minutes past one a.m., 
The fire had burned through the kitchen window of flat 16 and was racing up the outside at breakneck speed. 1.45am, residents were constantly ringing the fire brigade, frantically asking to be rescued. They were still told to stay where they were. Some never survived. 1.50am, 22 fire engines had now arrived on site. There was a lot of confusion about who was in overall charge and what they could, could be done to save the residents. Over 20 urgent calls had been received from trapped residents. There was still no instruction to flat dwellers to get out. Fire and smoke were engulfing the building, which had just one central staircase. This shows you now the floor plan of Renfield. And for those of you not familiar, there's six flats typically on the floor, and the central core, uh, which is that piece there, that has the lifts there and one staircase. So you've got six flats filled with people and one staircase there for anybody to go up and down. Emergency service to come up and uh, anybody uh, in, a, in a flat to get down. The idea, of course, before Grenfell was that um, all of this round here would be secure and would protect somebody if there was a fire which was imagined and envisaged to come from within. So it was imagined that there could be a flat, uh, if flat six was on fire, they wouldn't break into five or flat one, and the emergency service would have come, time to come up here and extract people from flat five and flat one. What they had to take into account is that if you retrofit one of these buildings and you provide a route for the fire to travel up the outside here, and then <coughs> you haven't um, made sure that windows are fireproof, the fire can break in through the windows. And that's why it was getting so hot and breaking into all of these flats so quickly. I think what shocked me, my father's been passionate about this for a number of years, and then when I agreed to drive the slides for tonight and started reading up on it myself, I was more and more shocked at every stern that I turned over. Uh, you look at the information that was ignored in the years running up to Grenfell, and it is deeply shocking. And really what's taken so long to be processed is that if you're going to retrofit buildings and change the whole fire dynamic of the building, you have to then change the whole approach to safety of the residents inside. And that's what's slowly now happening post Grenfell. But let's get back to the story. <coughs> By now, you've probably worked out there should have been clear instructions given to all residents to get out if they could. Having said that, the stairwell was by this stage filled with toxic smoke. So getting down at safety would not be easy. Fire and smoke will always travel up any sloping enclosed space. The more vertical it is, the quicker it will travel. If the space forms a flue and is lined with combustible material, the fire will get hotter and hotter as it keeps accelerating. And by the time it re re reached the top of Grenfell, it was white hot and travelling at great speed. By 2am, <coughs> several people had already been asphyxiated after pleading for help. Flames were burning round the crown of the top of the building and a waterfall of burning material was falling from the building. 129 people were still in the building, almost all of them above the 8th floor. Frantic calls for help were still coming, but the whole situation was very confused. 2.15am, the ordinary firemen were 
unable to reach the top floors, they only carried one oxygen bottle that lasted 20 minutes. Fire rescue uh, firemen were called, to, but they were not deployed until 2.44 a.m. Several more people could have escaped up to about 2.45 a.m., but they were told to stay where they were and were burnt to death. There were dozens of tragic calls for help, but we have not, were not answered <coughs> due to all the confusion and the fire brigade's rigid instruction, stay in your flat. On 2.51, the fire reached the western side. <coughs> At this point, some 63 flats were on fire and more than 100 people remained in the building. At 4.30, the whole building was engulfed with more than 100 flats on fire. The blaze did not burn itself out until 1.14 British, British Standard Time on Thursday, 24 hours after, later. Within two hours, the fire had spread across all four sides of the 23-storey tower. Residents were initially advised to stay put inside their flats as per fire safety policy for residential buildings over 80 feet tall. But this advice was abandoned at 2.47 a.m., too late for many. I've not mentioned either half of them, <coughs> of the victims at Grenfell, in this account. 4 a.m., rescue firefighters were sent up to try to rescue more trapped people. But the heat was so intense on the 11th floor, over 100 degrees centigrade, that they could not go any further up to the higher flats. They just managed to locate one family and help them to escape at 4.47 a.m. At seven minutes past 8 a.m. in the morning, firemen were searching the burnt-out flats on the 11th floor when a door opened and a blind man appeared. They rescued him and he was the last person to leave the building alive, Mr. Espindio Bonifaco. I probably don't have the notes properly. <coughs> I carry on. Okay. <coughs> Sorry, I've got to. <coughs> I'll be there in a moment. <laughs> right, again. That's my other bit. <laughs> that looks something like it. <coughs> the smoke from the burning cladding contained a horrible mix of cyanide, carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxide and irritant gases. I recently read in the paper that 20 firemen who attended Grenfell have been permanently injured by inhaling this, these gases. Many of, the, many of the residents must also be affected. <clears throat> it's now five years since the Grenfell fire, so what have we done about it? Precious little. Michael Gove has quite rightly admitted that successive governments bear some responsibility. So what should be happening? One, making the buildings safe will cost millions of pounds and take years to complete and nobody wants to pay. Making the residents safe is comparatively cheap and should have been done by now. So how do we do this? 
At the local council's expense, the following should be done urgently. Issue all flat owners with suitable fire extinguishers. Fire XO. We have samples here. He Make sure that all flat owners have smoke alarms. Fit an electric alarm system to connect all flats in the building. Supply and fit one hour fire resistant doors to each flat that properly self close. No holes to be cut in them. Instruct all flat owners to notify the authorities of all furniture that is not fire rated and, that any and of any kitchens with plastic backs. It would be a good idea to pressurise the escape staircase with fans to prevent smoke in, uh, accumulation. All building managers of high-rise flat, high flats should <coughs> have <coughs> an evaluation plan for the fire brigade. <coughs> Names of all the flat owners, particularly um, people that are disabled. Um, further, for, further tests were done um, on ACM by uh, Mr. Martin, um, and 24, uh, 24 high flames were, were come. So I think you've mentioned that already, haven't you? Um, but the government response to this reply was when the coroner said that they should change the rules, the government, the government reply was. <clears throat> we, we, we read her report out, but we do, not kiss, we do not need to kiss her backside. Can you imagine the government up in this country giving that as a reply? I can't. Um, on another case, um, the overall death rate in fires all over the country in general houses was actually going down, but the death rate of high-rise flats was going up, but overall they were coming down. So when the government were told by the coroner to uh, change the rules, um, the government response was, show me the bodies. Show me the bodies. Because overall, there were less bodies being burnt to death this year than last year. But a lot of them, of course, were in high-rise flats. Well, <coughs> there's now been... Um, uh, a very good book written by Peter Apps, who's an <coughs> investigating journalist, <coughs> and he's named the book, Show Me the book, b Bodies. And I, I've got it here, I can show it to you. <coughs> it's a very accurate account of what actually happened. So I should read it if you don't, uh, if you don't mind suffering from nightmares, because I certainly suffered from nightmares. I wake up at night sometimes thinking about this. I mean, when you think that probably 40 or 50 people in this country and abroad have not made decisions or made positive decisions knowing that what they've done is going to kill several hundred people, burn them to death. God, if that's not criminal, I don't know. I mean, this is probably the biggest criminal um, uh, 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 thing that's happened in this country in the last hundred years. I mean, I, I just can't believe it. Thank, thank you for that. There's one or two more things. Obviously, you've heard, we've heard from Michael Gove in the last few weeks, even. Um, uh, so he's pushing very hard now to get all developers signed up. Um, 
and is seeking as best he can to get this new Building Safety Act uh, to have some teeth and try to get people to take some kind of retrospective responsibility for buildings that have been finished inside the last 10 years. Quite how that will um, come, to, come into land, I'm not sure. Um, one thing I would say, my father is a very practical man. Um, I, he's blessed me with um, more education than he had, and so I've got a more of a, um, you might say, more of an academic education than, than, uh, than, than he received. Uh, but one thing he taught me was that whenever I go to stay anywhere to look, at, look for um, means of escape, make sure you've worked out how, if there's going to be a fire, how would you get out of a building, particularly if you're uh, travelling abroad and you're staying in some uh, hotel um, that, that might have the fire escapes chained up or non-existent or, or, or poorly worked out. So a very practical approach to sorting these things out. And I think what I would say, I talked to an architect friend of mine earlier this week, we, we've set up a, a separate charity, well it's not a charity, it's a community interest organisation, to encourage uh, men and women around the world to run their businesses in line with what scripture says. Because really what you've got in this country now, you've got a couple of industries that are really broken. So you could say the health service which gets lots of coverage at the moment is under strain, we're expecting it to do an awful lot of things for us but it's not really functioning as well as we might like it to. The same can be said for other health services in other countries by the way. Um, it's also true to say that the construction industry is not now operating as we would like it to. It's a broken industry in many respects. Why do I say that? I checked the insolvency reports for this year, for 2023. Which industry has more insolvencies than any other industry at the moment? The construction industry. Most construction in this country is constructing prototype buildings. By that I mean you're putting a crew of people together to build a building that has never existed before in quite the same way. We were talking, Adrian and I, early on this evening about ground conditions. Um, so even if you put the same building up, if you put it in two different places, the ground conditions dictate that you perhaps have to do the foundations differently. And the whole um, way that construction is set up is such that people are educated in silos. So my father had a more technical education. He gave me the privilege of going to polytechnic and then a university. People are educated in these silos and then thrown onto a building site and expected to all work together harmoniously. It doesn't work like that. And you've set the construction industry up to be combative. I worked for three different companies in the building industry before I left it. Two out of the three of them were manifestly corrupt. Um, and I can tell you some of the things that went on. It's extremely difficult to be ethical and professional and survive long term. I'm not saying it's impossible in the construction industry. And when it's set up to be combative, uh, it doesn't always produce good results. And that was writ large um, behind the scenes at Grenfell, but other disasters as we've try tried to scope out for you this evening. I think the sadness is, in a country that's still quite class-based, to the point that you know, if you've got a university degree or a further degree, then you consider yourself to be different from somebody that's had more of a trades background, uh, and the communication barrier, because you've been educated so differently and um, speak at a different language sometimes and, and discuss things in a different way, the communication between people who've got a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge about what's going on on the building site is lost and it breaks down and people don't really work collaboratively very well to put together sensible solutions. So it's a, it's a complex problem. So we've got some very practical solutions from my father here that I think could be executed. And I think you'll be writing to Michael Gove again soon. Yes, I've been, <coughs> been writing to Parliament. I'm having some response, actually. <coughs> but um, 
we uh, need a lot more. So this is the first time I've done a public speaking engagement with my father, who's now nearly 90, <coughs> turns 90 uh, next month. So there we are, yeah. age 57 and 89. So thank ah. you very much for bringing the talk to us this evening and for allowing me to drive the slides for you. Have you got, got any, any questions? By all means, ask any questions about anything to do with files. Um, that, that is, all right, what, what would you... The, the cladding on Grenfell is not the original cladding that was on that building. It's Sorry, you'll have to say, you have to repeat. I, I can, have a hearing problem. The, the cladding Correct. was replaced, wasn't it? Yes. yes. And, and the story I heard was that they opted for a cheaper cladding. That's right. Which saved about a million pounds or something. Yeah, well, I don't think they saved a million because the... The, the, the non-inflammable cladding was not, not that much cheaper, but because it was a little bit cheaper, they put ACM on, on, on it, and, it, and ACM looks very nice, it's aluminium cladding. But of course, forming a flu, it's actually worse than pure petrol. Worse than pure petrol. Yeah. yeah. But they, was, they should have fitted fire brakes, fire yes. barriers, for, every floor on the As I should already said, fire yeah. brakes were woof. This, with this ACM and inflammable on the wall and an ACM there, it goes up so fast yeah. and so hot, yes. fire breaks, like that. Yeah. They just yeah. don't, they just don't. Because, work. because the, the, just the blows in, through them. Because the infill uh, burns and gets so, so hot. I mean, there was, Father meant to say a thousand degrees when he was talking about the temperature on the building, not a hundred degrees, it was a thousand degrees. I mean, you <coughs> can't get near that, no matter how you're suited up. That's one of the problems. And the other problem was the fuse. Um, because it was petroleum products, and obviously we've seen what they look like. You, looked, you only had to look at um, the, the, the Grenfell Tower when it was burning, and you see how much thick black smoke is coming off. That's all the petrochemicals mm. going up. Um, you can't, you know, it's a terribly difficult problem to deal with. Mm. Um, that, that's the book. It's called, um, show me the book. Uh, and this chap is um, a, um, a journalist who spent five years listening to all the, all the, interviewing all, all the people, it's a very good book, provided you don't suffer from nightmares. Because, um, I mean, we've only given you a small section of what's happened, just to give you the, I mean, we'd be here all night if I went through this. I mean, yeah, they, 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 a tremendous they, number of fires went abroad, and, they've, and they cost several hundred people's death, but not only here, yeah, I mean, it's abroad. I mean, and that, that up until fairly recently, they've still been using this flipping stuff. Oh. That, that's the other shocking thing, is that there, was, there were no lessons that seemed to be learned from, brought, from, from fires using similar material that was allowed to be used here. But my, um, my brother's lady friend up in London lives in a block, right. and the whole block is completely, what do you call it, they can't sell the flats. Exactly, yeah. Um, they have to have fire wardens, which they yeah. have to pay for, yeah. while they go around the places. And it's because it's got this type yeah. of cabin, and nobody, they're, they're all stuck, these people can't afford to replace the place. <coughs> well, one, I, I read a case recently, there's one, there's one block of flats where the residents, exactly that, they decided to take into their own hands, hire a contractor, strip all the cladding off. So now, <laughs> now they're in legal um, wranglings that they took it off, and, <coughs> uh, and, they, and, and the people that put it on say, well, it, it wasn't particularly dangerous, you could have left it on. And so even that is not clear-cut, and you've probably read about that because I'm sure your sister's having a look at that. <coughs> so, as soon as you introduce a contractor, um, the building control people, uh, some, the, the local authority who are approving things, 
They're not properly qualified, half these people. That's why they haven't sued anybody and locked them up. You can't, you can't find a building inspector that knows what you're talking about, can you? But, they, no, but the, other, the other, the other, I mean, the, the whole industry is very tricky. To, it's, very, it's a very difficult, deep, systemic problem. So again, let's go back to an architect. Architects now are instructed by their insurance companies not to go near the sites that they're designing. <coughs> because if they go there and they miss spotting something, then they'll be liable and it might invalidate their insurance. So there's not enough money in the job for them to go there very regularly to be 100% sure that they've spotted everything, they won't go there at all. So they design the building and then they stay away. And yet they're supposed to be the person at the top of the tree, if you like, who's got more qualifications, more experience, and is overall taking charge of the quality of that building to a level even beyond <coughs> that which a building inspector might be expected to deliver. So it's extremely tricky, isn't it? When you've got, there's not what I call alignment. Where you get things happening that are really good and beautiful in life, you have what I call alignment, where everybody coming together is aiming and looking in the same direction, trying to get the same things. In construction, it's extremely difficult to get what I call alignment. I worked for a contractor in London in the early 90s, a sub-subcontractor, so building services contractor. We were doing similar to my father. I was training to go into that business. We were lending a million pounds to our parent company uh, uh, because we were basically squeezing our sub-subcontractors so hard um, that we were forcing them to be the bankers on the projects that we were running. And I was instructed as a young engineer, if I found a weak subcontractor, to give them more work because that way they were more likely to go bust and to instruct them as much verbally as I possibly could and not to sign any paperwork on site. <coughs> then at the end of the project, I'd hand it all over to my surveyor and he would then make sure they didn't get paid for too much extra at all and we would just pocket the difference. And we would bust regularly one or two contractors per, per job that I was running. And after a bit of doing that, I wasn't <coughs> going to have any more of that. And that was back in the early 90s. And that was how construction was running. So it's, it's a systemically very difficult business, um, <coughs> you know, a very difficult industry to be ethical, <coughs> be professional in, it seems to me. I'm not saying they're not right. ethical, professional right. people in there. Back to you. Would you like me to tell you something that's cost you lot some money? Right. Um, <coughs> this is a local fire. This is yeah. the local no, fire. No, 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 pra no. Practical, practical ignorance uh, is right across the professions. Architects design glass line buildings that require air conditioning, but they have low ceilings. You can't put the ductwork. can't put the ductwork in. Um, uh, <coughs> They also design these great big roofs, like we've got up here at Whiteley. One of, one of the big roofs up at Whiteley blew off. The one at Chichester caught fire and demolished the whole of Sainsbury's. Um, at the digital headquarters at Basingstoke, um, we did all the mechanical services and we put the roof on as well. Um, I wrote to the main contractor and said it was a fire risk. We poo pooed. When it caught fire, it cost £28 million. Um, the sprinkler system had been taken out of our contract and given to a company at a lower price. They didn't install it properly in any case. When the fire brigade arrived, they switched it off for some unknown reason. They didn't allow 45 cars to be removed. They made a complete mess of, of dealing with the fire, and it cost the fire brigade 17 million pounds. Do you know who paid for that? We did. 
Uh, all of Hampshire ratepayers had £5 added to their rate bill. Now, also on that job, I told the consulting engineer who designed the air conditioning equipment that we had to install that he'd die one day because he always eating and, and, uh, and, uh, at site meetings and talking at the same time. Well, it was somewhat uh, uh, right that he did die several weeks afterwards because he was a consultant to the London Underground just before the King's Cross fire. And you know what happened with the King's Cross fire. We had a wooden staircase with a gap underneath, rubbish dropped through, set the oil and the grease on fire, and it sent up a cloud of unburned uh, gas up underneath. And it was on television not long ago, and I looked at it, and a fireman came down the other staircase to look at the fire. What he didn't know, or didn't realise, was not long afterwards, that gas that was going up from the fire as it got hotter and hotter would suddenly ignite in the form of an explosion, shot up there and killed several people in the, in the head. That was it. So, you know, these people just don't understand. They, they can't, when I built, when I heated this room, I, put a, I brought a fire, a, 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 a hose reel extinguisher there and one up there. Fire brigade wouldn't let us fit it. It's the fire brigade job to, to, to uh, put out fires. How blooming steep can that be? You can put this sort of thing out with a hose reel, but you can't put it out with, a, with a, uh, an ordinary, um, uh, ordinary hand extinguisher like that. So we're not on commission, yeah. but um, these were, Fire XO is, is a new material, relatively new, and this was actually invented in, in our county in Hampshire. And this, for instance, do you even know what that is? Have you got one? If, if we had a pan fire here, if we had a chip pan or something uh, uh, going wrong on the hob, you don't, instead of putting the fire blanket over anything else, it would be very good for the kitchen here. You just do that. You just drop the whole thing in, and that just foams up, and it completely fills the pan and puts the fire out. And then you can take the pan off, you don't just turn the gas off or turn the electric off. And works much better than the fire blanket, you don't have to get near it. The whole thing just melts, and the um, chemicals inside expand into a foam, stops the, the air getting into the fire, puts it out very quickly. And this, I now got these at my charity, again, the same product. Instead of having different fire extinguishers for different things, you can use a fire XO extinguisher, and I'm not commissioned by the way, um, you can use it for any class of fire, and they are fantastic, I haven't had to use it, so I'm very pleased about that, I'm the health and safety manager there as well for my SIDS. Um, but it's a very good product, so there we are. Uh, just trying to have a bit of positivity yeah. this evening yeah. as well as all the negative. So is that a liquid? Is it a powder? Um, you, can feel, you can feel it. Um, there's a liquid in there. Um, that's £7.50 on Amazon, by the way. So, yeah. you know, if you like one in my kitchen drawer before I go tonight. Sorry? Because uh, I have an HMO, you see. You know, a house on all four. Yeah, yeah. And I'm really red hot on this because, you know, um, when the local authorities inspect me, I've got all my certificates, uh, my CRB and everything, and they come to me, and within five minutes they're going out there because I've got it all organised. Because, say for example, I've got all my um, smoke detectors, they've got a battery backup, and they're all linked. Yeah, you have any internet, don't you? Yeah. You know, um, and I have an electrical certificate every five years. Now, rather than having them tested, you know, they come around with a little pole, don't they? I just have them replaced, and there's no argument. But um, the other thing I would say is um, the type of people, though, not being derogatory in that, uh, uh, social housing type people, 
And I have a number of people over the years who have been placed um, with me because they've burnt their own cases down. And one of the common things is you know, they daisy chain extension leads and have them loaded up. You say, go out. Um, so you know, I, I'm really, really hot on this. You know, I've got um, stickers you know, um, next to the television. You know, don't leave on standby. Another one by the door. Have you turned off all the electrical appliances? No, it's said you're dead right. I mean, there, there is there's both uh, an ethnic dimension to this. Yeah. If we if we be blunt about this, and you know, and there's a there's a social social economic dimension to this as well. So many people in tower block living. I mean, apart from a few luxury flats, you know, but even they've got problems, you know, because of the cladding. It affects everybody. Um, they often didn't choose to live in those flats. They've been placed there. Um, uh, as you've highlighted, yeah. um, they have mobility issues sometimes, and, and almost uh, invariably there's a language issue. Uh, well, you think when, when the fire brigade went to Grenfell House, they hadn't even been informed that it had been replanned. And they certainly didn't know who was in each flat, the names, or whether there were any people with any infirmities on any floor of that flat in London in 2017. And you'd have thought any bear with half a brain could have worked out. If you were the building manager, I mean, look at you. Look at you sat here tonight, you know, Christian man in here in a church hall, and you're taking such care over the people that are living in houses that you own. And yet people who are supposedly professional couldn't, couldn't have, don't have a care in the world, don't even do the basics. And it just seems, you know, it's, it's utterly tragic. Well, I know some landlords, they won't even allow um, local authorities to inspect the property. And one of the reasons is there's such a shortage of what I do. And the quality of um, the, the buildings, say in Southsea or Southampton, uh, no disrespect, but um, they're quite often owned by Asian people or Indians, and they just put as many people in there as they can and let them get on with that. Is that what you've experienced? Yes. I mean, my daughter has just graduated from Loughborough. If you go around the centre of Loughborough and you look at the quality of some of the buildings there, I mean, I have an HMO myself in East London, mm. where I used to live when I lived in London, and I treat it very seriously. And it's exactly as you say, it's got an interlinked fire, it's all tick, 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 all very carefully looked after and managed. And my daughter lives in that as well. But yes, um, you go to Loughborough, you go to many other places. My son, uh, one of my sons is a student in Exeter. Again, the property's there. I, I don't know how they got the nerve to charge what they charge. I mean, you're into three figures, so into six figures rental for some of those properties, and you look round at the condition of them, and it's absolutely disgusting. I don't know how the councils are allowing some of them um, to continue like that. I think it's just there's a shortage in their desperate. I would be very surprised if Grenfell Tower is still structurally sound. Yeah. But if it is, it will be a wonderful example for pre-stressed concrete. Because pre-stressed concrete is, the concrete is very good in uh, compression, and steel inside is very good in tension. And if, this, if the two stay together, uh, they, they, they'll, they'll, they'll still last. But of course the Twin Towers in America collapsed because plane goes into the tower and knocks the concrete off the, off the reinforcing. 3,000 gallons of, 
aviation fuel burning uh, uh, bends the, 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 the reinforcing, down comes the building. And if the top half comes down, it knocks the bottom down. So we lose thousands of people and two great buildings come down. Now, Grenfell Tower was white hot in places inside the building. Yeah. Well, if that's still standing, I know the firemen were uh, a bit uh, worried about whether the building was still structurally sound. And, but I think they only, only sprayed cold water on some other lower floors. So whether they cracked the concrete and the it wouldn't surprise me if it hasn't got to be uh, knocked down because if some of the lower floors con precess concrete is cracked, etc., then they can't really replace that without replacing the whole lot. So I'm very interested to know the result of that. Um, on your heading, what's the heading? Uh, just run through it again, just to remind me the three C's. Um, oh. Oh, well, start looking. Oh, the, the yeah. scriptures. But with yeah. um, uh, Grenfell, that started through an electrical fault. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's the, that's the primary cause of most, most fires of electrical faults. So, what you were saying, with um, these buildings now, they're inspected, you know, they've got uh, smoke detectors, uh, fire extinguishers, uh, uh, warden. That is a good step forward. It is a good step forward, yes. But um, you know, look at also you know, people bringing in sheep and forty electrical. Yeah. That, that's always what started down Was it a freezer? Yeah. What it was, it's a plastic. Um, it was a it was a fridge, a fridge freezer. But in the UK, as opposed to the USA, the USA you have to have a metal back on appliances. Yeah. And then if something goes wrong with the appliance, you haven't got a big area that can catch fire. In the UK, if you look on the back of our, most of our fridges, it's got a plastic back to it. And so if you do get a fault there, which can happen, obviously, and did happen at Grenfell, then you've got something immediately that's quite flammable nearby that can catch fire. I'm just talking about the metal backs. So I'm a father. Oh, yes, yes. Um, the metal backs to appliances, which you have. Well, they're banned in America and lots of other, other cars. They won't allow plastic backs on them. Well, 6,000 fires occur in this country alone with uh, kitchen equipment, 6,000 every year. Um, so, go on, yeah. I don't want to hold the meeting, but um, the other thing I've noticed over the years, that most of these fires uh, occur in social housing type properties. Somebody's got a, a nice property down here, they're obviously taking a lot more care <coughs> over it, yeah. looking after it, maintaining it, and not taking risks, where somebody, Yeah, I mean, of course, pat testing is not a legal requirement. Remember, yeah. um, pat testing, pat testing is just a way to demonstrate that you've complied with your legal obligation. So it's a whole industry that's grown up in response to a vague prompting that you should be responsible as a landlord, and there's a whole industry grown up around that. So pat testing is the best way at the moment that we have of demonstrating that we've, yeah. You know, but it's not expensive. No, it isn't. You know, as a, a yes. Yeah. A tax deductible expense. Yes. Yeah. So it's not it's not all come out of your profit and your uh, your own pocket and your profits, is it? It's no. a, a running expense. 
no. legitimate running expense. No, it's very well put. And you're quite right to identify that, of course, poverty is a key in this. Yeah. And, and what, when we think about poverty, <clears throat> there's a lot of dimensions to poverty. I know it's, it's very easy to home in straight on the money, but you're quite right to say there's a poverty of decision-making. Yeah. Um, often, if you're poor financially, then you're permanently stressed because you're worried about how you're going to get through the next week, the next month. And then that affects the quality of all your other decisions. And then you've, you've then there's perhaps poverty of education that you've had as well. So you don't know what's available to you and you don't always understand the consequences of certain actions that you might take, whether that's regarding your diet, your intake of alcohol, drugs, or any all kinds of other things, or other lifestyle choices that you might choose or not choose to make. So it all kind of comes together in a perfect storm if you're not careful, but you've identified it very well. There need to be more landlords like you, I would suggest. I think we're the only country that allow single, uh, a single fire escape. Most other countries insist on two fire escapes. Yeah, yeah. So the fire, fireman can come up one to deal with a fire, and the other people can go down the other to escape. But um, we're, we're, uh, when I extended my offices in Portsmouth, I went to three houses, three domestic houses. The fire inspection officer made me bang holes in on the first floor and put fireproof doors on all so that if a fire occurred anywhere I could turn my back on it and find a staircase on the first floor. <laughs> and here we go build 26 flats up high with one, one, uh, anyway, and in the middle. Hold, hold, on, hold on, we've got another question. Another question here. It just seems strange that this conversation is, uh, is vortexing around uh, an idea that actually what is missing in the conversation is what contributes to human flourishing. What contributes to a life that is content and joyful? Uh, and, and when I look at the, the kind of modern trend for building up rather than out, which actually itself has, has not been proven to be any more or less expensive um, to build outwards rather than upwards only, we seem to have, um, we seem to have subscribed to this kind of modernist idea that actually what we need to do is that me stand other thing about building cities in the sky. In other words, the human flourishing can only take place if you're piled one on top of another, and that creates community. And I'm not so sure that the modern ex the experience of places like Grenfell Towers or any other tower would say that there is any more community in a sense of community or sense of well-being within a tower block than there might be. So all this conversation actually seems to be predicated on the idea that we, we know what we're doing with regard to human flourishing. Uh, and, and, and I just don't think we've got a clue, and we haven't, and therefore we build what we build with, uh, with no sense of uh, working from the ground upwards to, I'm sorry, to build uh, the contradiction, rather than the, or the, human, the human person up. Uh, just, it just seems crazy. I mean, this whole thing is an <coughs> to both, um, and the tower of people fell down in the end, I mean, these towers. That was the picture we'll, I showed earlier. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know, I know it was, I saw that. And I just, I just, yeah, well, yeah. I, and I don't want to, at 20 past nine, I don't want to let that conversation <coughs> too far. No, thank you for that. I think you're quite right that, that we are, we're all, um, you know, all of us here are permeated by the culture that we're living in. We're colonised in a sense by the culture. We might think we're, you know, a bunch of Christian men here getting together and we're holding firm, but actually we're all creatures of our culture. 
and, and all of that is driving us in directions that don't, I don't, I don't think lead to human flourishing. You're quite right. <coughs> so you've got a question here. Well, observation. as you were explaining things, so well, and some pretty obvious, apparently obvious ways of doing things better, like you said, two fire escapes and other things you've mentioned, uh, it seems eminently sensible. Why, there must be people thinking about this. Are there? Where, why aren't they if they aren't? And why don't they make something happen to make the whole place and everybody's life yes. safer? Why, why is this not happening? They don't have a conscience. No. Do you remember? Where does it, where does it end up? No. You know, who's, do, do you remember Summerfield in the Isle of Man? Summerfield, they had a plastic roof. 3,000 people were in there when it caught fire. 50 of them never got out and were burnt to death. That's building regulations gone to pot. You know, building regulations want to be rewritten like they were after the fire of London. One of the problems is they'll build a, you know, a fire-resistant concrete shaft in the middle of a yeah. story block. Yeah. They say, right, this is completely fireproof and safe. It's our protected escape route. You know, we won't put anything flammable in there. There's a staircase, there's the lift, there's the gas, and everything. the rest of the building can hang on. Yeah. So basically, we'll make all the, as you meant, referred to, each of the flats will be a fire compartment. Yeah. So it's safe for people to stay in there yeah. while we put out any fire. Because all that went completely wrong. That's right. That Grenfell, because they put the stupid planning at the yeah. start. Yeah. They don't allow in hotels. Go to a modern hotel in this country, and you, you can hardly open the door because it's self-closing. And if you have a fire up there, you can turn, go through a fireproof door on your flat and escape. Or if the fire's there, you can go that way and go through a fireproof door. The same on ships. If you go on a cruise, you'll find difficult to open the door. But okay, it's a self-closing door. And whenever I, if, if, if I've gone on a cruise, I always find, always work out how to get out if it was a, you know, it's, it's a good idea to do that. If you go on a foreign cruise ship, they ain't quite so good. But I think, I think I think we get very familiar. Familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, I think if you if you own your own home, you obviously you maintain it, you look after it in a certain style to a certain level. Once you start to own multiple properties, or you you are. We, we've got a breakdown in this society. I mean, we could get very philosophical here now and, and start to look at the separation of, of ownership and, and management and the management class that's separated and then the, the form of the corporation, which Christians in the early days were against um, for various reasons because you get this divorce of, um, of, of ownership and control and you get a different mindset developing. So if I'm a hired hand and I'm a manager, I think fundamentally differently about what I'm doing compared to if I'm running my own business that I might pass on to my children. Um, I could take a longer view and I have more relationship perhaps with the people that I'm serving. So there are issues around that. Um, I think we could, we could bring more of a safety culture in and legislation could be passed that, that encouraged landlords to take safety more seriously. I mean, I think there are good things that have happened, um, but it's keeping it going day in, day out. And people, I mean, you, preventing daisy chaining of, of electrical appliances is, is very difficult to do. And even if you do all the pat testing, stopping people bringing in dodgy 
electrical items and having them catch fire. I mean, even people's phones catch fire, don't they? I mean, you, you hear the old case of lithium batteries catching fire, and we've got a lot of those around now. So, yeah, I think interleaked fire alarms, having good fire drills. I mean, they didn't even seem to have proper fire drills. I mean, ha you know, I have to do fire drills all the time, and I'm just in an empty cow barn, you know, up on the corner of a farm north of Winchester. But you look at these blocks, and the fire brigade don't have any proper way of getting everybody out. Uh, when did they last do fire drills? You know, who could they even check that they could get everybody out in a certain time? And how, who would you get out first? You know, and what about, they didn't even seem to know about that blind man, did they, on the 11th floor? I mean, how criminal, who, who was the building manager? You'd have thought anyone with any kind of heart looking after that building would think the first thing you do, I mean, if you were put in charge of that building, the first thing you do would get a list of everybody in there and make sure you knew where everybody was and maybe every few months you'd walk around, knock on all the doors, check how everybody's doing, have a little eyeball around the place, have a little mosey and make sure you were up to date with who's who. Keep a log of it as well. There you go. On a spreadsheet even. And you probably give that to the fire brigade and then you say, you find your contact at the fire brigade. So if you ever get called to a fire at my block, here's everybody in the block. And by the way, you go to this one, this one, this one, this one, this one first, please, because they're going to take longest to get out because you're going to have to carry them down because the lifts will be shut. Wouldn't you do that? Uh, how basic was that? There you go. Well, you, I told you what happened to the regulations in the mid-80s. 1998. I don't like modern builders building roofs with two-by-one timbers. I call it kindling wood. Because most house fires start with an electric, well, a lot of house fires, not most, but a lot of house fires start with electrical faults in the roof space. Well, if you've got one of these modern with two by one timbers, that's like kindling wood. That's, you've got the whole roof on fire before the fire brigade arrived normally, and by the time they get their hoses out, it's gone through the first floor, and really speaking, you've got the whole house to, to redo. Now, if you've got an older house and it's got four by two timbers in the roof. Four by two timbers take 20 minutes to half an hour to burn through. Yeah. And if the fire brigade arrives with an older house, they very often put the roof fire out and all you've got is water damage down through the first floor of the house. And the same with these big roofs. I mean, uh, the fire brigade gave me their video because I helped them with uh, investigating the fire at, uh, at digital. And they, they just catch fire and explode. It's frightening, it really is absolutely frightening. You know, you wouldn't want to be near it. Um, then they kill, they break 45 cars parked around the outside of it. Oh. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, I think we better right, wrap yeah. up. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Two books. I haven't read that one, but uh, I, I've read this one. But I, I suggest you read, you read it because it's very educational. It's that down. Mike, Mike, Mike.